This episode is brought to you by WeatherGuard Lightning Tech. At WeatherGuard, we support design engineers and make lightning protection easy. You're listening to the Struck Podcast. I'm Dan Blewett. I'm Alan Hall. And here on Struck, we talk about everything aviation, aerospace engineering, and lightning protection. All right, welcome back to the Struck Aerospace Engineering Podcast. I'm your co-host, uh, Dan Blewett. Welcome back. We're excited to be here for an exciting 2022. So welcome back. Uh, Happy New Year. Uh, first, so today on the docket, we're going to talk about Korean Air. They've got a drone swarm to help inspect aircraft, which seems to make a lot of sense. So we'll chat through some of the implications there. we got some Boeing 777 news. Uh, they're again being targeted by the FAA after one of their engines broke apart uh, earlier this year. We'll talk about uh, H2 Clipper and their goal to have a full-size hydrogen airship in 2027. Uh, Amazon has invested in Beta, which, of course, Beta has uh, sold aircraft to uh, UPS. Um, They've got some orders, some preliminary orders for that. So we'll talk through the uh, implications of Amazon now investing there. We've got some really interesting articles about uh, EVTOLs um, and whether the battery energy density is going to be there for them. And lastly, we'll talk about what's uh, up in store for EVTOLs and investing in 2022. And if this is really the year, as a TechCrunch article put it, uh, to put up or shut up. So, Alan, let's start with Korean Air. They've got a drone swarm and they're going to be inspecting their aircraft with this. This seems like it makes a ton of sense. I mean, how are they inspecting aircraft in the past? Obviously, these are commercial aircraft are not easy to get to the top, to get to, you know, inspect some of the radomes on top, all these different systems. Is this going to be the future? There's been a couple of different companies around the world that are looking at drone inspections. And we're using drones to inspect a lot of different things in our wind turbine podcast. Uh, There's a lot of wind turbine drones that are inspecting blades and making sure things are working. And that technology is, is now being transferred over to the aircraft. And the, the, the ones I've seen, and I've said in a couple of webinars about it, uh, that, that the, the drones basically take scans of, of portions of the aircraft. They could take the whole aircraft, but they're, they're on a scan plan. They know where they are. Well, so to the aircraft, they know what aircraft they're scanning, and they, and they take a bunch of photographs. And that data is used then to examine the airplane. I think the, the, the swarm technology is a little bit a little more interesting because you can do it faster. The key is you don't want to keep the airplane on the ground too long if you can avoid it. So having more more, more technology up in the air, taking more images, uh, higher resolution images is going to give you more data, which in, in theory should allow you to do the job faster. And that's that's important. And uh, remember, a lot of the aircraft is like underneath the wing is kind of hard to do, right? And underneath the fuselage can be a little tricky because the aircraft are not that high off the ground in some cases. So the, the smaller drones probably make some sense there. I, I, the interesting piece is that the FAA hasn't really talked about endorsing it at all. And I haven't seen it used to uh, justify not having mechanics get on cherry pickers or actually get physically on top of the aircraft and, and with the harness and walk around and put their eyeballs on parts of it. Because think about, think about it, Dan, if, if I had a, a whole bunch of images of an, like a 777, which is a big airplane or A380, a huge airplane, I'm not sure what I would do with those images unless I had some technology that would pick out where problem areas were 
And if it doesn't didn't do that correctly, and I could accidentally have an aircraft get back in service with a crack or something that the that the AI may have missed, that would be a serious problem. And I don't know if it's going to, you see what I'm saying? That I don't know if they're going to take the mechanics off the airplanes anytime soon. You know, you're watching the plane, like from the drone's point of view in real time, like in video. That was kind of how I assumed it was, but I don't know if that's the case. But yeah, I think just having a smattering of photos leaves a lot to be desired because you're kind of, you have this like patchwork view of the plane. And, you know, yeah, I feel like, and I don't know what these mechanics do, but you think, yeah, if you see something, maybe you do want to like put your hand on it. Like, is that, is that really a crack or is that just like a little mark? Is that actually raised? Does it look like something's peeling off? Like, I imagine that's, there's a tactile component to it. Uh, is that, is that correct? Yes, there absolutely is. Uh, and you may not be able to see it with images that easily. And I think some of the scans I've seen have included LIDAR, which is a, you know, a simple form of laser radar. So you could maybe see imperfections. So it's kind of a double-edged sword in a sense. You may miss some things that you would see with a walk around, or you may see too much and get super worried about fluctuations in the skin or or something that doesn't look like quite Right. Now, because you have all this data flooding in, you may be making uh, more repairs than you probably should. So that's where I think the technology hasn't been flushed out that much and, and needs to evolve a little bit. The wind turbine side, which is, I think, the interesting piece uh, because it is, doesn't involve people flying on it. There's been a lot of uh, auto, automatic artificial intelligence to, to scan those images and to pick out where the issues are. And that seems to work pretty well. But how many rivets are on an airplane? 100,000? Something like that, right? And, and uh, it'd be really hard to pick out a particular problem or even a limited problem with drones without having sort of, some sort of software to analyze those images because it would take a human way too long <laughs> to sort through that, I think. Yeah. Well, and do these need to be done in real time? Like, do they need to be done in an hour? Or is this something where you can do this and then go back to the office, look at all the photos of the video? I mean, what's the time frame like this? It says it can take, it can inspect an aircraft in about four hours compared to 10 hours for a human inspection. But is it completely done in 10 hours with a human inspection? Like that start to finish? And is this just like, we've got footage in four hours? That's a good point. So in the 10 hours of mechanics walking around, getting on top and, and uh, walking on the wings and doing the full inspection, it does take a, take a while, but there's no record of it. Whatever they see, if it's important, they will write it down, but other stuff just gets omitted, right? Because it's just too much data. With the drones, you still have to do that, do the scan and then look at the data and if the scans, if there's some sort of software that's telling you what to, the, the mechanic, what to look at, how is it making that selection? Are you missing things? The one area that I think that comes up a lot on these drone inspections is our lightning strike damage. Airplane took a lightning strike. Pilots declared it to the mechanics. Hey, we took a strike. We need to do the post-strike inspection, which is delineated in, in uh, the manuals for the aircraft. What, is, what does that look like? Usually you just walk around for a mechanic. But if you want to maybe quicken that up by having some drones take images and scan it and to look for that particular kind of damage, maybe. It's just a question of, you know, what is a drone looking at? Is it as good as an experienced mechanic's eyes? An experienced mechanic, pretty good at picking up weird things on airplanes because they've been around them so long. I'm not sure 
drones can do that. That's that's the that's the area of concern, right? And it's going to take a couple of years, just like it did on wind turbines. It took a couple of years to get to where we are today. Aircraft's going to take some a little bit longer because there's human safety involved. It's going to take a lot of it takes a lot of data to train an AI properly, and you wonder where they would get that data from. Like, do they have a million photos of what this damage looks like and that damage looks like already there to do that? And I'm not sure if that's part of this right now. It doesn't sound like AI necessarily is. It's it's unclear, but that would seem like it'd take a lot of yeah, a lot of data to train those properly where you're right, you're not missing it and then discarding data that would maybe show an imperfection that needs to be taken care of. Right. Think of how many images that Tesla does or how many hours of uh, video it, it takes to make the next revision. Right. It's it's a lot and that's a car. With a couple of people in it, uh, it's not 200 passengers going at 500, 600 miles an hour. And I think that's where it's just going to take time. And I think the way that Tesla did it is by doing a lot of road tests, just gathering data and data and from users' cars too. They're just taking data and data, data, massive amounts of data, and then processing that. I think that will have to happen on the airplane side too. Is that there's no regulatory agency that's going to let that get implemented on a consistent basis without being able to prove how good it is at picking up defects and problems. Well, speaking of problems, uh, obviously in February, a Boeing 777 operated by United had one of their Pratt & Whitney engines basically break apart during a flight to Denver, uh, or actually from Denver. And it was a really crazy, um, crazy video. You know, it landed safely. Uh, but there's been a FAA, uh, obviously the FAA has been on top of this. And Alan, I guess United is the only company that operates 777s with uh, Pratt & Whitney engines. So what is the FAA doing about this now? Well, they're, they're going back and having Pratt & Whitney take a look at that failure mode and design a fix that keeps the fragments from coming outside of the nacelle and there and there's there's so much there's only so much you can do right the 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 fan blades you see from the outside uh of the engine those have a containment ring around them to prevent them from to slow them down and not penetrating the the fuselage the pressure vessel where people sit but in this particular case the nacelles came off and everything kind of let loose and they had shrapnel uh enter the fuselage which is extremely dangerous, and and you just can't have that happen. And now, I all engines I think have to do some sort of demonstration, either computationally or a physical article of showing what happens if uh, rotor burst is is the big one, right? Rotor, rotor burst is the sort of the hot section of the engine coming apart, and and there's like uh, areas where you're, you're trying to prevent that from hitting other critical systems what's happened on years ago on a flight that was in iowa actually and crashed in iowa and that was one of the things that's really started the rotor burst thing where engines come apart and start cutting critical systems and the airplane can't fly anymore and that's crash territory right and that's what you were so you have sort of two problems one debris entering the fuselage bad debris hitting critical systems and your airplane can't fly anymore super bad uh, and we've had engines let loose. I think it was a last one I remember was a DC nine 
and it killed a passenger sitting real close to the engine there. In this particular particular case with United, there wasn't any fatalities, or I don't even remember any injuries uh, to passengers. Coming, yeah, I don't remember that. But I, I, the articles keep talking about the fuselage being penetrated by debris from the engine, so that's going to slow down Pratt and Whitney on the triple seven for a little while. And uh, it, it, I, you know, what can they do at this point? Don't know. Probably, probably a combination of do more inspections, which they're probably doing already, to make sure these cracks don't propagate to the point where they come loose, and maybe some uh, kind of more Kevlar-ish uh, capture systems. I'm just not sure they can stop parts of the engine from coming apart. Depends on where it is and what what let loose and what the, the chain reaction was. It's a complicated problem. You can imagine how much energy is stored in one of those rotating pieces. And if it lets lets loose, there's it's really hard to stop that. It's a big problem. Yeah, and I mean it's a testament to the safety. Like we never hear of of stuff like that hardly ever, which is great. But you're right; it's really scary to think what could happen if some of these high speed pieces start piercing a fuselage and ugh, could get ugly, ugly. Well, engine reliability is over the last thirty years has dramatically gotten better. And that's through newer materials, new types of inspections, better engineering, computer um, software that helps us design these things and analyze them. So the, I think the track record for Pratt & Whitney or GE or Rolls-Royce, all of the engine man, major engine manufacturers has been really, really good on terms of engine safety. So this one is not great, but uh, Pratt & Whitney is a really good engine company. Let's just put that out there obviously they are uh, and they're going to correct this issue it's just weird to see it get to this level of of oversight so moving on uh, h2 clipper is partnering with the so systems and their goal is to bring a full-size hydrogen airship uh, to market in 2027 um, alan two questions a why airships? I mean, we've talked about this a little bit in the past. I mean, do you really think these are viable? And B, why hydrogen? Well, hydrogen is just a big push because it's a renewable piece. When it burns, it burns clean. It, it makes water. That's the, is the byproduct. And so there's a lot of push to, to move to hydrogen as a aviation fuel. Obviously, Airbus has been looking at it closely. And there's a lot of other different aerospace companies looking at it. The question is, you know, how to utilize it in the best way recently uh sweden and i think this week it was norway or it may have been, may have been denmark but i think it was norway no uh, no it was denmark uh, are going to outlaw uh uh non quote-unquote non-green flights domestically so international flights you could still use jet a or whatever they're going to use but domestically in country they want to have a clean aircraft system and there's not a lot of ways to do that. Obviously, the, the, the one way is that some like Hart Aerospace is pursuing right now is an electric battery powered, smaller regional aircraft, which makes I think makes a ton of sense. And the other one is to go to an airship type situation, uh, particularly for cargo, you know, because the cargo piece may make a lot of sense uh, because of the, uh, the amount of cargo it could possibly lift and how if you're just going uh, an hour or two 
uh, uh, particularly in France, uh, if you're going from Paris to Toulouse, which is probably what a couple hour flight, two hour flight, maybe an hour and a half flight, you could move cargo that way with a with a airship. It's going to be it's there. There's been a lot of airships talked about for cargo. Cargo Lifter uh, was a big program back in the 2000 2005 era which seemed to go away. So the, the, there's, there's been a number of attempts to make a, a, a lighter-than-air ship, but very few successful ventures with it. We don't see in the United States anything that's not related to, to football games on airships, the Goodyear, Goodyear um, uh, blimps now, which are uh, they changed from uh, balloon style to a more of a Zeppelin style airship recently that's pretty much all you're going to you've seen in the states and i assume you're seeing the same thing in europe there's just not a lot of airships around and maybe the push to greener technologies will open that door up again so this is this is something to really watch because if you're going to outlaw jet fuel if you're going to outlaw burning of of carbon-based fuels then you there's not a lot of other th- ways to go dan what else is there there's hydrogen there's battery and what else yeah it's going to be hard i i think i'm not sure this is the right answer for any country to outlaw uh, at this point because we don't have anything to that's a replacement so if you if you ban it you don't have a replacement what do you do yeah it's a good question well france is france is talking about outlawing flights that can be driven within two and a half hours or taking the train uh, so you won't be able to offer a domestic flight that is uh, shorter than that. So if you had a, uh, a, a an hour-long train ride, you couldn't get a flight for that. They wouldn't even offer it. And I'm not sure that's a great idea either based on safety. Aircraft are one of the most safest ways to travel. Train obviously are, but I'm not sure their safety records as good as aircraft for the number of passengers moved. be interesting to find out. So moving on to our EVTOL segment today, uh, let's first talk about Beta. So they have just gotten some investment money from Amazon, and of course they've got a large uh, provisional order from UPS. Uh, so that's really helped to legitimize, you know, what they're doing with their Alia aircraft. Um, Alan, what do you think of their design? And obviously, this is a really big, a big piece of investment for them. It is uh, Amazon has started its own shipping business uh, to compete with FedEx and the likes of UPS. Uh, if you've ever, you maybe start seeing, if you're at an airport, you may start seeing Amazon planes, cargo planes flying around. And so if Amazon's making the move into moving cargo, and it seems like they have, then they're going to have to invest in some airplanes. Right now, it seems like they're leasing airplanes to do that. But they're, now they're talking about uh, electric and UPS is too. The, the interesting piece, Dan, and I think Amazon is hedging their bets about not having pilots, that they're autonomous. That's where the difference will be made, right? If you don't have a pilot in it and you have, uh, it's just control from the ground or it's autonomous, does it save a bunch of costs? Yeah, sure it does. Um, pilot availability is a problem. Pilot, you know, limited flight hours, uh, paying a person to fly the airplane is expensive so getting the pilot out changes everything cargo wise because it, it would really open up a lot of doors and being able to like fly a beta from one amazon 
center to another Amazon center instead of trucking things back and forth may may make sense. I think, Dan, the question is like the cost, right? Uh, the cost of a beta aircraft is estimated to between four and five million U.S. dolls. And, and most of the EV tolls have been in that range. I think Joby, they keep talking about Joby being five million, Archer being about five million. Uh, so what it can do versus what it's uh, jet a burning turboprop can do are not really close like fedex has been on the invested in the in the textron sky courier the twin engine turboprop high wing airplane that airplane sells for around i think seven million dollars uh and let's see it can hold it can cargo carry uh five thousand pounds 460 miles so 5,000 pounds, 460 miles. And they're talking about Aaliyah carrying 600 pounds, about 125 miles, 150 miles, something like that. Those are worlds apart. So for an, another million or two, you get an aircraft that's a much more versatile. It's not electric, but it carries a lot more cargo, has a proven pr track record, and uh, it, it has... It's going to show it's just going to be a, a very cost-efficient way of moving cargo around. That's why FedEx is, is doing it. Because if you think about the way this is going to go down, unless they outlaw jet A burning fuel aircraft, it's probably going to make a lot more sense to do what FedEx is doing. Because if the autonomous, autonomous piece does come into play, well, FedEx can make those sky couriers autonomous just as Beta is going to make the Alia autonomous. It's not particularly difficult to do there's a lot of aircraft flying around autonomous in flight tests right now uh, so the question is whether the battery electric is going to be com competing with something that's a uh, you know alternative fuel or jet a based uh, machine I, I Dan do you see that that you know long term there's just a, a factor of cost involved and, and flexibility and I'm not sure what UPS and Amazon are thinking quite yet. Uh, and, and maybe it's just a bet on the future. And maybe it's a, a bet on battery technology. Maybe that's where the bet is, is that the batteries are gonna get better, the airframe's already built, uh, beta's gonna get some airplanes up and running and the batteries are gonna get better and it's gonna compete on a, on a level playing field. Maybe so. Yeah, and Beta's also interested in uh, putting charging stations around the country. They already have, I think, eight in operation and I think it's over 50 under construction or in the or, uh, in the permitting process so they plan to make money from selling uh, these charging stations and replacement battery packs so it seems like they have a, a good model where people really believe in what and what their uh, fo uh, their founder Kyle Clark is doing um, and also that it's not just a one-trick pony necessarily there's m multiple different ways they can you know make money and, and be profitable in the future so um, so yeah, it's just definitely an interesting, it's definitely interesting what they're doing and they've been kind of under the radar, but you know, with the, uh, legitimacy from, uh, UPS and, and others, especially now Amazon really just gives them a, a lot of steam to keep going. Oh, sure. And the air force has been really good about distributing some financial support to a lot of the eVTOL companies, especially last summer when times were tough and everybody's in COVID. The Air Force did gave some of these companies tens of millions of dollars to evaluate their technology. So that helps get them along. The, the cash burn at some of these companies is going to be in the 
hundred million dollar a year sort of range, especially as you get into flight tests, that cash burn's huge. And manufacturing, cash burn's huge. So if you got 20, 30, 40, 50 million dollars from the U.S. Air Force, that's going to help offset some of that cash burn you have. And of course, one of the big questions still for all of these EV2 manufacturers is the energy density of batteries, many of them of which are the requirements are kind of on the fringe of what even like new sort of novel uh, lithium ion technologies can provide. So there was a really good uh, thorough two-part article from Clean Technica um, about battery density. And this was also mentioned in the article about, about beta that, you know, a lot of these companies are really pushing the limits considering that, you know, battery packs are 14 times heavier um, for the same amount of uh, propulsion from uh, jet fuel. And so the weight is obviously a, a massive issue. Um, I mean, Alan, where are we with batteries? And I mean, are companies betting the wrong way, as this article is kind of saying um, in Clean Technica? I, I, that's a great question. I, the effort in automotive batteries is not to necessarily have huge advances in the density as much as lowering the cost of them. And in an airplane, that doesn't really help you all that much. You need to lower the cost and lower the weight and increase the density, right? Energy density. So uh, I, I think that's where the automotive companies are going to be diverging from the aircraft companies is that at some point, uh, cutting, obviously cutting some weight out is beneficial, but can they cut it enough to make it competitive with jet fuel? I don't think so right now all the battery technology i've been watching is not going in that direction as much as just lowering the battery pack cost uh, so the range the range of the aircraft won't change all that much the cost will i mean that the profit margins will change because you're going to be paying less for batteries and i think that's where the rub's going to come is do you have on longer flights do you really have the range of the battery power to do it and is it going to take a long time to charge Right. Those are the those are the two big things we don't know right now. And and until we get more data, some airplanes flying, it's gonna be really hard to tell. So moving on, let's talk. Obviously, it's 2022. Happy New Year, everyone. Uh, Alan, there's a, a really good article on TechCrunch. And basically that they said that it's the year of put up or shut up for a lot of these EVTOL companies. Um, and part of that is making substantial moves into flight testing and getting them towards FAA certification. Do you see it that way for this upcoming year? Sure. I, you have to have an airplane entering into flight test and with a pilot in it for count, for certification. Sometime at the end of 2022, if you're really serious about getting 2024 deliveries happening. There's just a, a, a number of flight hours that have to be spent, and there's going to be problems. There always are problems, and how how much time it's going to take to recover from those problems, how much redesign effort is involved, how much re, you know, retesting of, an, of the flight testing program you have to repeat because of the changes you've made. All those play into that sort of nebulous number of flight hours. You'll, you'll see published numbers. We're going to do X amount of flight hours. We're going to have X amount of flights, and before they start and then you look at the end and like uh there's another 20 30 percent more uh, flights and and more time spent um that's normal right and i i i think that the the key f for all these programs if you're going to get 
crushed if you're the 10th aircraft company. You need to be one, two, or three uh, into service, I think, to have a shot of really keeping your market share if there if there is a significant marketplace for this. And putting something out in service in 2028, it just isn't going to do it. Uh, I think Joby and Archer a little bit, because Archer's just barely flying right now. Heavy side, there's a number at Lilium, uh, Volocopter, Beta. Beta's been doing a number of flight tests with pilots in it, I think. So <laughs> there's a number that are pretty far along that should be starting conform cert tests sometime this year, I think. And that would make a lot of sense. But everybody else, I think the investment groups will f- drive that because they realize I can, I'm not going to put $50 million into a, a company that's going to produce something in 2030. It's not worth it. It's not gonna. It's not gonna be viable. Yeah, the reality of time comes into the play. Yeah, because you wonder about the stocks, and it's like I was looking the other day at Joby and Lilium. They're both around like seven and a half dollars a share, and you wonder if they don't put out an aircraft for two years, what does that stock do for two years? It just rises and falls based on people's excitement because there's no money coming in. I mean, that's pretty much it. I mean. Which obviously, you know, some people people have different views of the stock market, but it's clearly not just a rational tied to valuation vehicle, right? It's you know, it could just jump up and jump back down. But conceivably, look at those companies, and they're not going to have any revenue for at least another year or two, if not more. And so you just, yeah, you have to just wonder about who wants who wants to invest in those stocks. And I've thought about it because, and I still might do it, just because you throw a little money in there now. You never know what happens in the future. It's a small bet on something, you know. But um, but aside from that, where you're really just sort of speculating, it's not like you can put money into it in like you, like as you could a traditional stock where they're continuing to build revenue, put out new products. You know, you, you invest in SanDisk and they've got a new line of SSDs and like, you know, everyone's revenue is going to go up. People are excited. That makes sense. But here there's just it's just a stagnant. We don't have a product yet for two more years, three more years. And like you said, you wonder how long people will continue to want to be a part of that unless they're like, you know, just want to toss some money in and hope it goes gangbusters in three or four years. Well, that's going to be part of the issue at any aircraft company. It's it's where a Joby or a Beta is today is keeping investors active long enough that you can get to the finish line. Because you're right. There's just not going to be a lot of news coming out. Archer's trying to make a bunch of splashes every week, and I think they realize the situation, which is they got to keep their stock price up, but they got to keep people interested because if there are better investments out there for the next two years, uh, then money will move and stocks will become less. And then your company, you have a hard time making payroll and that'll close a lot of doors. So it's not just about making technology. I, 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 I don't understand the articles I read that are just technology based, uh, Apple succeeded and Tesla succeeded and all tech companies succeeded succeed because they have cash there's a lot of cash coming in the door and if it doesn't start coming in relatively soon then investors will start walking away because there's other opportunities to make better money and i think in this uh weird inflationary period in which we're in where interest rates are going to start rising it's going to become a little more competitive for cash um, people are looking for more return on their investment and airplanes have not been a huge return on investment historically 
There's not a lot of airplane companies that uh, investors have gotten rich off of. They do it for a love of the technology, and that's fine. That's great. I mean, it keeps airplanes alive, but uh, very few people make make a lot of money in airplanes. It's kind of like race cars. Like, how do you make a little money in race cars? You start off with a lot of money, and you burn it all off, and, and that's what happens in airplanes, too. So, uh, you know, I, I just want to make sure everybody's clear that it's an investment, and there's a lot of risk on on airplane companies, and it's really hard to to have massive returns on investments on an airplane company unless you're going to do things like Joby is talking about, which is selling rides, and, and then maybe, maybe it'll change the dynamics of it all. All right, well, that's going to do it for this week's episode of Struck. Thanks so much for listening. Be sure to share the show, leave us a review, and subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or YouTube wherever you listen or watch. Thanks again, and we'll see you next week on Struck. Strike Tape, WeatherGuard Lightning Tech's proprietary lightning protection for radomes, provides unmatched durability for years to come. If you need help with your radome lightning protection, reach out to us at weatherguardaero.com. That's weatherguardaero.com.